Today's podcast is brought to you by Season 2 of the UCB Show, streaming exclusively on CISO, which is NBC's digital comedy platform. The UCB Show, presented by the founding four of Matt Besser, Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, and Matt Walsh, is filmed in front of a live audience at the UCB Sunset Theater in Hollywood. Showcasing the best sketch comedy, stand-up, and characters you can find regularly in the UCB theaters in L.A. and New York City. To watch the UCB show, go to CISO.com. If you sign up with promo code COMIC, you'll get two free months of CISO. That's right, two free months of unlimited ad-free comedy delivered to your favorite devices. It's only $3.99 per month after that. I'm a subscriber, and I like to call up new episodes of Saturday Night Live on Sunday mornings so I can zip through it without all of the ads. CISO also has a library of classic comedy from America and Great Britain, plus new original series including Bajillion Dollar Properties, Take My Wife, and Harmon Quest. If you've enjoyed my podcast interviews with Janine Garofalo, Lori Kilmartin, Cameron Esposito, Doug Stanhope, or Brian Prosane, then you can check out their newest stand-up specials immediately afterward on CISO. Go to SEESO.com to start your free trial and get exclusive access to the UCB show, plus much more in streaming comedy. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Scott Ackerman got his first big break as a writer-performer on the HBO cult classic Mr. Show with Bob and David, but he's responsible for many more big breaks. Not only is host of the Comedy Death Ray and Comedy Bang Bang live shows, first at M-Bar and later at the UCB Theater, but also is host of the Comedy Bang Bang podcast and TV series on IFC, as well as co-founding the first major comedy podcasting network, Earwolf. He's won two Emmy Awards for making Between Two Ferns with Zach Galifianakis, one for an episode which starred President Barack Obama, the other for an episode with Brad Pitt. He's also met you too, thanks to his podcast with actor Adam Scott, and now makes CISO streaming shows Bajillion Dollar Properties and Take My Wife. His newest venture is Michael Bolton's Big Sexy Valentine's Day special for Netflix. Ackerman spoke to me from his home in the Hollywood Hills to explain the long and winding road his career has taken him on. So let's get to it! So, Scott Ackerman, thank you for inviting me into your home. Hi, Sean. Uh, look at my home. Uh, uh, there's a Christmas tree over here that's still up, and um, a bathroom where, look, I'm going to just say it. I pooped there once. <laughs> once. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your two Emmy Awards. Mm. Yeah, that's obnoxious that they're right there. <laughs> I agree. Um, well, the last time, I mean, we've talked a couple times, uh, through IFC channels. Yeah. I feel like one of the last times we talked was in New York at the, um, London hotel, right? Or right. They have a something little, like that. They have a little mezzanine. And I believe the last time we spoke, I mentioned that, uh, we were maybe going to do an episode of Bang Bang, uh, the TV show, which was all in one take. And we were just looking for the reason to do it. And you laughed and said, oh, maybe the editors go on strike. And 
I said, oh, that's a good idea. And then we ended up doing it. And thanked you in the credits. Oh, you're very sweet. Um, the, I want to talk more about you, though. The first time... No, let's talk more about you. <laughs> what else... <laughs> what other TV shows have you been thanked in? Uh... I, b- I believe I was thank uh, I was thanked in the Brody Stevens. Oh, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Okay. Um, I made a cameo in that show. Mm. Um, but I remember the the only other time we've talked in Los Angeles was I met up with you and oh yeah, me and Jeff and Jeff mm-hmm. in Burbank. Yes. Uh, and you were talking about uh, starting a podcast network. Yeah. We had we just started it. I can't remember. I sort of remember the circumstances where maybe you reached out to me about it, and I said, "Oh, Jeff should come," and invited Jeff. Was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then, he knows more about this. <laughs> yeah, probably something like that. Um, yeah, but we had just started it. Was yeah. that true? Was it because we? Let's see. Bang Bang, the podcast has been going on almost eight years, so Earwolf would have started seven or so ago. Yeah, I think it's somewhere around there. Six and a half, two, somewhere. Two thousand nine, twenty ten. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and and did you imagine it would it would grow and be sold and become a thing and become a thing? What did you what What were your hopes then? Um, I mean. I definitely, you know, I was coming off of um, doing the, the you know, the old comedy death ray show at UCB. Um, I'd only been doing the podcast for a year at that point, um, but I kind of, I kind of wanted to do what I did with the comedy death ray show at UCB, where I just wanted to have have it be a hub for um, people to get together and. Um, there you go. My assistant is skulking around and had just grabbed my phone. Um, Were you thinking you needed a life where you had an assistant? And- yes, I need more to do. No, um, no, I kind of wanted to just have have it be what what the UCB show was of like, hey, let's get a whole bunch of people together to do these podcasts because um, I've been enjoying podcasting and I've been seeing how cool it's been. And then we took a look at um, projections for how popular podcasts were going to get. And we saw in the next two years it was going to grow by like 200% or something like that. And I kind of just was like, oh, I think it would be really cool. And maybe the shows will make money. And if the shows make money, then we'll make money um, because of the deals that we would make with the shows. And, um, you know, everyone can make, you know, everyone can just make money off of doing this, this thing, you know, so that, that was really all I expected with it was that the company would make, you know, money if the artists made money. Right. Um, so this was before, you know, we had the idea which is really spearheaded by Jeff um, to become the place that sold advertising for other podcasts, other than which is where Midroll, which is where Midroll came in. Yeah, I mean, and that that really was the kind of the thing that made the company worth buying in a way um, more than the Your Wolf Network part of it. That's probably a not very um, big chunk of of why 
the company was bought, <laughs> the actual um, podcasting were, network part of it. But you were able to make deals even before that. Like there was the partnership with Funny or Die. Yeah, I mean, we were to get the brand out there and to get. Yeah, we were. I mean, you know, the whole the whole thing started, and and you know the 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 whole thing started because I was doing the the podcast for a year at that point, and Jeff heard about it through um, Jerry Miner, a mutual friend, and um, he met me to actually manage the show um, or try to figure out business opportunities for the show. He has a business background. Um, and and I was not really interested, and I kind of listened, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. And then one of the very last things he said to me as I, as I was leaving was, you know, if we had any balls, we would like make a podcasting network and try to get a whole bunch of shows going. And I was like, that's, that's the idea I like <laughs> because, because like I say, the old comedy death ray show, I was very into producing and this, this kind of headspace of let's get everyone together. We, we know so many incredible people We're we're stronger together than we are apart, you know, and we can make, we, we can make our aesthetic a thing um, if we band together. So it was really tough to convince people to do podcasts back then. No one, um, knew what they were or thought they were going to be popular. And I would, I remember like talking to the birthday boys at a party at their house once. And I was saying, you guys put so much energy into doing this monthly show for a hundred people. And I know, and that's, slightly dismissive because I had the same thing where once I did a show for about a hundred people, probably maybe more like 200, um, back in 1997, I think I did a musical that, um, me and my friend wrote, um, brand new original musical, um, that starred, Paul F. Tompkins and um, Brian Posehn and a bunch of people and me. And I put it up for one night only for 200 people. And Bob Odenkirk was like, why did you do this? <laughs> and he goes, Look, you're doing this for no one. There's like 200 people here. You did all that work. Why are you doing this? And in my head, I was going, well, kind of because you're here, Bob. <laughs> and uh, and Bob was in it, you know, and I was like, I'm trying to get a job on your show, <laughs> you know, and he gave me one. So, so it's a little, dis- it's a little reductive to say you're doing this for a hundred people when you're doing it to create buzz in the industry of like, Hey, the birthday boys are a thing and they got their own TV show. Hey, so I saw La La Land. <laughs> I know that if hey. just, just putting on the show, you know, there could it's be a weird th- brag in the middle of my interview. There but, could be five people in the audience, <laughs> but if one of them is right. the casting, well, that's what I mean is like, you know, at the UCB theater, you know, casting people go to all that and all that. Mm-hmm. But the point I was trying to make was you're doing a show you're killing yourself and going all out on the show that a hundred people will see every month. What if you did a podcast, you know, if you just started one right now on my network, 2000 people would listen to it this week. You know what I mean? And that would be worldwide. Is and that, you could grow that an from there for me to join Earwolf. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was back then too. You know, like right. I think right now if they were to do something, it would be big anyway. So that was, that was kind of my sales pitch to everybody is, no, podcasts are big and you don't know how big they are. You think they're sort of 
oh, like what, 50 people are going to listen to this thing, but actually, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good investment of your time. So no one was listening to that back then. Right. That's why, that's why I'm curious to talk to you because, you know, we talk about the comedy community, but it's very rare that the comedy community acts like a community. Everyone is mm. focused on their individual projects. Yeah. So I, I, I uh, to, to counter, I mean, might be different to counter now. your thesis. Yes. You could say that regarding maybe professional projects sometimes, but I would say the comedy community is constantly acting like the comedy community in, in terms of, I never have an issue calling up someone in the comedy community and going, Hey, can, do you mind coming on down here for, you know, to shoot something mm -hmm. really quick? Or do you mind coming out here and being on this thing I'm doing? I, I barely even have to describe it. And, and that's not since I've had a TV show or anything like that. That's been, you know, the entire time that I was, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been working since 95, but. You know, when I was doing Comedy Death Rate at UCB, I remember calling up Pat Oswalt and saying, hey, there's a guy who donated $2,000 to charity to host Comedy Death Ray and uh, shoot a video um, package. He's never done comedy. Do you mind coming out and being in a video with him? Yeah, uh, I'll come down tomorrow. You know, that's that's been the amazing part of working with the comedy community is we really – are supportive of each other and want to see each other succeed and will drop everything if it's for a comedian, you know? So if an actor were to call you up and go, Hey, I got this thing I'm doing on, you'd be sort of suspicious mm -hmm. of it and go, eh, what is this? But if a fellow yeah. comedian were to call you up and say, Hey, do you mind coming down to do this thing? Like most people I know would just drop anything and do it. By the same token though, you know, like you described, selling people on the idea of a podcast seven years ago, mm -hmm. it was a tougher sell because people didn't know what it was. And yeah. And the, the few podcasts were out there. Everybody was just kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. I mean, the few, it was interesting because I felt like I was super late to the party. I mean, Jimmy Pardo <laughs> kind of talks about how he felt at the time He's one of the pod fathers, right. but he felt at the time he was late to it slightly. And he was, but, but at the same time, he felt like he was, and he would explain this better than I, but, but he felt, why don't I actually do something right now instead of be the person who looks at it five years from now and says, I wish I did it. And so even <laughs> that, though, that's at the, <laughs> but even, I mean, I feel like you were super early, but, um, instead of, even at the time, it was sort of like, oh, Ricky Gervais has done all you can do with podcasting or whatever, because that was really the only podcast that I remember being around. Um, and that's like, oh, wow, he's super popular. I don't even, I, it would be fascinating to me to look at his numbers from back then and with, with how much podcasts have grown now. Right. And see if they're still impressive. You know, but I, but like, here's what I'm trying to say is I bet at the time we were looking at that going, Holy shit, a million people listen to his podcast in total? That's crazy. Like, we could never achieve that, you know? Um, but so, so Jimmy got into it and was kind of like, oh boy, you know, is this over already? <laughs> Which is so funny because he's one of the, you know, original people. And I was even later, 
you know, and I was kind of like doing it because I was, I was inspired by Jimmy, um, and seeing how cool it was and how fun it was to just goof around with your friends and have people all over the world listen to it. And so, um, I forget what my original point was, but we all kind of felt like we were late at the time and, you know, now we're sort of looked at as maybe the first wave of podcasting in a way. I wonder if that's because in the early days of podcasting, the technology hadn't become so accessible. Right. So it seemed like this... A little bit, although I do remember... It seemed one, almost like a passing fad. I do remember one of the very first... Um, I mean, it was... Uh, Matt Belknap came over to my house with a setup very similar to this. Uh, it was... It, it actually was way more complicated in terms of this device. I'm mm-hmm. pointing at the actual device you're recording right, the Zoom. on. Right. Um, that was more complicated, but it was, it was a lot like this. But you know what was interesting to me was... Um, you know, I didn't know... I didn't, I'm like most comedians, I don't know, or I didn't know how any of this worked, right? Right. So, like most comedians, I was like, I didn't even record my first show, because it, it was on the radio. And um, the station, the radio station said, hey, do, do you mind if we podcast this? We've had a little success with the podcasting part. I was just doing a radio show. Right, and on Indy. On Indy 103.1. And I said, yeah, sure, that would be cool. And they had, did not record the first show. I reached out to a fan who had recorded it off the radio. That's the record, the official recording of the first episode is from a fan who recorded it off the radio. Wow. So I, w- I had no idea, and I think I'm like most comedians, where... I just was like, oh, if someone else figures this out, sure, I'll do it. Um, and then kind of the way m- my brain works, though, about t- 10 episodes in, I start getting cu- curious about it. And I said, so how does all this work? What? Like, we're recording it and then you send it to iTunes? How does that work? And someone explained to me, oh, no, 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 you... Um, you have to host it. Um, Indy 1031 had been hosting it on, um, probably Libsyn. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that. Um, no, Libsyn is still the. Is it still yeah. around? Okay. That's what I use. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. I liked, I actually like their, their, um, homepage and their, um, all their features on it. So we had, we were on Libsyn for like a year mm-hmm. and I just said, do you mind if I get that Libsyn password for my show, you know, just so I can check it out? And then I started looking at, and then I realized, oh, okay, it's hosted on Libsyn and all iTunes does is it's a middleman and a conduit. And I started like kind of tracking everything back and going, oh, so you can track your numbers on Libsyn and oh wow, here's how the growth of the show is. And I started like tracking the growth and mm. noticing. And then I, you know, it just became a fascinating thing to me, which I don't think a lot of comedians do. Um, most comedians are like, I just want to go into a room, record my show and walk out of that room and have someone take care of all the rest of exactly. it. Exactly. Right. So that became the whole reason for Earwolf was let's, and that was what I used to do at the old comedy death ray show was let me take care of everything for you. I'll take care of the theater. I'll get this theater. I'll get the audience there. I'll get, um, you know, a passionate audience. Who's going to laugh at every little thing you say, I'm going to do cool shit, like make calendars and CDs and all that. Like all I want you to do is show up. 
you know, and that, that was why, that was what I thought Earwolf could be is, is like, let me do, you know, let me and Jeff and, you know, our staff and all that, let us do everything and you just show up and be funny and we'll, we'll do all the rest. What, what gave you that kind of mental, I don't, acuity or that, um, foresight? Ambition. Foreskin? <laughs> to want to, to want to expand the brand that way, whether it was Comedy Death Ray or later Comedy Bang Bang or Earwolf, mm-hmm. to go, we can do more than just put on a show. We can have a calendar. We can have a holiday pageant. I just have always loved it. I've loved, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I've loved Did, fr- from just, from, from like, you know, marketing of, like, oh, look, Monty Python has a book or, <laughs> or they have a CD mm-hmm. or, you know, I just have always loved the ambition of doing stuff like, like that. I've always felt like that was part of the cool thing about Comedy Death Ray was, um, you would come to the one year people came to our Christmas show in the UCB theater in a mm-hmm. hundred, 125 seat theater. They, came to the show, were handed a Sears photo calendar of me and like eight of the comedy death ray comedians singing Christmas carols that we went down to Sears and, and shot <laughs> for free. Mm-hmm. We just handed them this thing that like I called up Chris Hardwick and Mike Furman and Matt Besser and, you know, a, a ton of comedians and, and just said, Hey, do you mind coming down here to Sears one day and shooting this stuff? And everyone said, that sounds fun. <laughs> and we handed everyone that and, and then they were like, thank you. And then they watched a great comedy show all for $5. Like I was, I loved that about that. And I would do things like the, the, um, the Halloween shows where, you're not expecting anything. You're expecting another Tuesday night show. You show up. You're told that you're going to be walking through a Halloween maze in order to get to the show. And we set up a huge Halloween maze throughout the UCB theater that had real legitimate scares <laughs> and deposited you in the audience. Mm-hmm. And people were like, what the fuck did I just see? And then people go and do Halloween themed stand up for, for an hour and a half. Like I, I remember I got that idea and I took it to the UCB, um, um, Susan Hale, who runs the UCB out here in LA. And I said, I really want to do this Halloween maze. And she said, no, that's not a good idea. And that always throughout the years, that was like a fire in me Mm -hmm. of, I remember the first time I said, Hey, I really want to do an all night show for our anniversary at Comedy Death Ray. And this is when we were at M-Bar, and everyone said, I don't think so. I really want to do a show that like starts at, at 8 p.m. and ends at 6 in the morning. And everyone was like, I don't think so. And then I was like, fuck you, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and, you know, that's just kind of, I don't know what it is about it, but I just like producing, you know? I just like that. I don't I don't know what it is, but I, lo- I love... The idea that a, a comedy fan, because I used to be that person, you know, I used to be that comedy fan who was like, I wanted to see shit. I remember when I saw the comic relief ad in the L.A. Times for the very first comic relief. Mm-hmm. I just looked at that and I was like, Pee Wee Herman and David Letterman, like these people I idolized and they were all going to be there right. on one stage. And I was just like, 
fuck, that sounds so cool. And I just have always wanted to do shit like that. Uh, which of the three did you identify with most, Robin, Whoopi, or Billy? Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. At the time, I was a bigger fan of Billy Crystal than anyone of um, of those three, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, I think I grew to appreciate Robin Williams more than when I was younger. When I was younger, I remember not really being into Good Morning Vietnam and kind of thinking Good Morning Vietnam came out when I was 17, I think, and I went to see it with some friends and everyone was rhapsodizing about it and going, oh my God, that was so funny. I was like, oh, it was a little hacky to me. <laughs> but <laughs> You're already but comedy think, nerding it Yeah, I, at 17, I was like, look, he only does like four voices. <laughs> he does the black guy, the Indian... <laughs> John Wayne. The, yeah, John Wayne and the drill instructor. Come on. But um no, but I I think I think later in life I liked Robin Williams more than the other two probably. But I think it was just more about the package at the time to me of of like this is everything important in comedy happening on one stage. Later I would watch it and go, "Oh wow, Pee-wee Herman didn't get to do much or David Letterman didn't really get to do much." I'm glad. But at the time I was like I think it came out when I was 16 or 17, Comic Relief, the first yeah, Comic Relief. And I, I was just like, oh, God, I would give anything to be there, to be there in that audience, to be able to see that. I would, I just want, I was that fan. I wanted to see that stuff. And so when I got to cross over and be part of the comedy community, I just really wanted to offer that to people. Um, and, and give them experiences like that, you know, and I think, over the years, there were a lot of those. I mean, especially the Comedy Death Ray show at UCB. I think we did a ton of shows that if you were a comedy nerd, you'll, you know, hopefully always remember. No, even though the UCB was built on improv, your your Tuesday night show there was the must-see show. It was interesting because Matt asked us to come over um, when he started the theater, and we were on Tuesday nights, and... Um, he said, um, he was like, yeah, you may have to move to a different night because Tuesdays are in New York. They're, um, Harold night. <laughs> and that was a big tradition and it was right. a big tradition for them. And I was like, uh, I think it's more important. We don't change nights, <laughs> um, because our audience is used to coming. I was already like scared out of my mind about switching theaters. You know, it was a big decision. I went and walked the UCB theater and I like, I had Susan there and I was like, well, you've been to the one on Franklin, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at those chairs stage left and I said, that's really cool. Could we do it on stage? Right. And Susan was like, I don't think so. (laughs) And I was like, no, 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 move this. Move this, um, move these theater seats over here to stage right and then put some folding chairs here, or not folding chairs, but, um, put some chairs over here. She's like, maybe I go, that'll expand the, the, uh, the seating, uh, capability. And it also puts someone on each side and it'll make it feel really, I was, I was really obsessed with like intimacy with comedy. Um, and that was kind of what comedy death ray was about was, um, breaking down the barrier uh between the audience and the and the performer 
to where if you went to go see a show there, it wasn't it wasn't like you were watching a performance and you were no part of it. It mm. was about it was about you were a part of it and and anything could happen. Um, people could start talking to you or a, a sketch could break out in the audience or, you know, that was what I was really into. And, and the seating, not to sound too much like Todd Glass, would, to be <laughs> obsessed with seating and lighting, but the seating was always a big part of that to me. It was as I wanted people, as you were watching the comedian, I wanted in your peripheral vision for there to be um, 20 people that you would watch watching that show. And to be just sitting there on stage. Um, and Todd, speaking of Todd, he would always get mad at me because the lights were a little too, um, a little too bright for him because you could see too much of the crowd oh. who were sitting on stage. And he would be like, no, I want it to be like, a, I'm the only thing illuminated because then people can only pay attention to me. But we would have this discussion a lot where I always thought that it was more important to see the crowd all around him. Um, because that's what the aesthetic of the show was to me, was the interaction. Hmm. Man, I feel like we're getting way off topic on this, but. <laughs> well, so when you, when you evolved to comedy bang bang into the podcast and then also the TV show, you know, hearing you talk about just wanting to put on a, a great show, it now makes so much more sense why you've always kind of been at least when you're listening or when you're seeing you on TV, you're more of the, like the ringleader rather than the star attraction. Yeah. I, I mean, in the TV show, it kind of came about out of just trying to do a translation of, of the podcast. I think in the podcast, um, yeah, I came about the podcast in terms of being sort of a producer of that show. Um, comedy, Death Ray and Bang Bang weren't, they weren't shows that I was performing in every single week. And as a matter of fact, by the end of the comedy Death Ray slash Bang Bang show at the UCB, I was kind of checked out of it for the last two years, I would say, where I was like barely even, even wanting to be there. Um, but, but, uh, I, I was coming, coming to the, t to the podcast with that, sort of thing in mind of like, I'm the producer and I'm the guy who is sort of the ringleader. Um, and, um, but I also, I also was trying to be a talk show host and I was trying to be, you know, even more than that, a radio personality where I was trying to set people up to, to, I knew everyone had, a, I knew everyone's bits. So I knew Andy Daly had recorded his nine sweaters <laughs> record at my show where he came 10 weeks in a row and we announced it every single week of Andy Daly's doing a residency for the next 10 weeks. Come, you're going to see an awesome Andy Daly bit and you're going to, your laughs are going to be on his record. Like everyone knew when they were coming every single week for 10 weeks in a row, like in the middle of the show, Andy Daly's going to do a bit and we're recording it for his record. So I knew all of his bits and so I knew I knew them by heart. Mm -hmm. Like if you listen to, not to be too nerdy about this, but thank you. If you listen to episode 35 <laughs> of the podcast, I don't know why I know that, but it's Pat, <laughs> it's Pat Oswalt and it's Brett Gelman and Brett Gelman does eye brain, right? Mm -hmm. I am 
if you listen to that, there are still people who listen to that episode and say, wow, you were so shocked by, by what Gelman was doing. No, I've, I knew that bit by heart. Like Gelman had done that at the show at UCB several times. I knew it so well that I knew when to interject and act shocked and ask him to stop mm-hmm. and go, no, surely that <laughs> is all you're going to do. Cause I knew he was going to go further. Right. You know, that's, that's kind of what I, I felt like I had to offer in terms of the, the show early on was, Oh, I, I know everyone's bits by heart. I can be this person who really is additive more in a talk show host way, a late night talk show host way where, if you watch a late night talk show these days, most of them, 99% of them know what, what the person is going to say when they ask a question. Right, it's so, all orchestrated and set up. Yeah. So I was the guy who I thought would be the ringleader in terms of like, I was just trying to be a good talk show host. Oh, tell me, Hey, have you ever, you know, it's setting them up for one of their bits, you know? So, so that's how Without being Byron Allen on comics unleashed. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, uh, do you have any experience with tornadoes? <laughs> Why would you ask me that Byron? Unless I had five minutes on tornadoes. Um, but so that's sort of where just, if you listen to the early episodes, I was just sort of experimenting and trying to figure out, Oh, what is this podcast going to be? The first three episodes were just kind of hanging out with comedians and then the station manager was like, uh, I'm not interested in just a ramble, you know, like you just talking about process or whatever. I'm more interested in comedians actually doing bits. So then I was just like to every comedian, come on in and do a bit. So if it was Sarah Silverman, do you want to do some songs that you wrote or um, Natasha Legero, you know, like how can I set you up for some of your stand up or what have you? Um, and then early on, Andy Daly came in. And again, was doing one of his bits I knew really, really well. And I felt comfortable enough to ask him. He was talking about a, a heavy coat he bought in order to drown himself in the ocean. And I started asking him where he got the coat and really focusing on the minutia of like, I, I don't even remember the details of it, but I remember talking a lot about the coat and the salesperson who sold him the coat and all that. And he was, and, and he was such a good improviser. He would, he would jump in and go, Oh yeah, she asked, he'd go, why are you asking me this? And, <laughs> but he would continue on and he turned it into really funny stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember driving home after that one and just going, Oh, I feel like there's something there. And maybe that's the show. Maybe, maybe that to me is is the show. And I I was really influenced by, you know, the 2000 year old man stuff with Carl Reiner and, and the, the joy you could hear when Carl Reiner would ask him something and Mel Brooks would come up with something off the top of his head, manufactured or not, that, that was something that I loved about comedy. So that was what I tried to do with the early shows. Okay. Did you have aspirations to be an actual talk show host? I did. I mean, you your know, shows have been plays on the theme. Yeah, but I had this fantasy when we started Bang Bang the the show that I would do it for three years. Um, it would be as popular as Portlandia, and three years after I started, Letterman would retire. And I would be like, 
in the mix for like the late show. Mm-hmm. After, no, I'm not saying to replace Letterman, right. but to like, I would be in that conversation of like, you know how anytime anyone retires on the daily show or whatever, they have, co- you know, countless articles about <laughs> who will replace this person. Then they list every single person who is a, if you have to put your feet up, by the way, I can move yeah. all this stuff. No, it's fine. But, um, you know, they have all these articles about, well, this person has got heat and this person, you know, obviously could do the job right. and, you know, this person is a big star, so, so, you know, and, and has the, this experience. And then the internet loves coming up with all sorts of lists. Yeah. Here are the top 10 not white guys. Right. So I had this fantasy in my head of like, oh, wow, this is going to be the, the natural stepping stone. It was one of many times in my career where I've been knocked the fuck back down. Um, the Mr. Show movie being the first one where I was like, oh, yeah, this will be our first movie. And like Monty Python, we'll do, you know, four or five movies as Mr. Show. And then we'll branch off and each star in our own movies like Fish Called Wanda and stuff. Well, that certainly didn't happen. But um, it, it was definitely something where I was like. But then 20 years later, there was another Mr. Show project on Netflix. Yeah. And Bob became a huge TV star. Yeah, um, but. But it just was, it was one of those things that I was just sort of hoping about of like, oh, I'm doing my own talk show, so I'll be talked about to host talk shows. And then the show did not become as popular as Portlandia. And I, it became a real cult hit just due the very, due to the very nature of the show. It's like fairly, again, it's one of those shows where I was like, look, I'm going to deliver an episode and it's going to have, the Lonely Island on it and the Oh Hello Guys. And <laughs> meanwhile, across the the way, across the studio, we're going to have, you know, I just wanted to put everything in it for a comedy fan and for a non-comedy fan that's really hard to get into. So it just became one of those things where I was not ever talked about it on those lists. And then the other kind of thing that sort of happened was in those five years that I did the show, um, you know, I kind of feel like I was one of the last, um, white guys to get a talk show, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's a place for me to be talked about in conversation now. I really don't know. Um, I would, I, 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 Sometimes think that I would like to do it because I think I would be good at it. Not that that's a reason to do anything just because you're good at it, but I have always wanted to do a regular one where it wasn't so arch and it wasn't so, you know, me trying to have a non interview interview, Mm -hmm. you know, but, um, because if you listen to bang, bang podcast episodes where I have, someone that I am interested in talking to on, I think I'm a relatively good interviewer where I keep the interview interesting. I let the person talk about what they're talking about. And it, and it is, I could do a WTF type show. Well, I remember seeing you at South by Southwest. This must've been six, six years ago now Mm -hmm. where you got to sit down with Paul Rubens. Yeah. And that was, it was great. I essentially, and I've Your done version of that. And I've done events where I've moderated panels and um you know, at Comic Con last year I did the Orphan Black panel and you know 
like was set constantly setting them up for mm-hmm. stuff, you know, and and had really fun ideas where I was like, hey, uh, Tatiana and Christian, what if you guys improved as your characters and like totally set them up? And that became like the the kind of viral thing that happened out of that panel. And so I feel like it's something I'd be good at, but it is an interesting landscape out there of of. You know, you look at that news the other day of Conan cutting back his show and and um, what is a talk show anymore? And 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 it really has changed. I used to want to be a talk show host because of David Letterman, not so much Johnny Carson, you know, and for me, David Letterman, that show was the dream because. You saw him and then Conan after him being essentially a comedy delivery service. And for for a person who, when I first started watching David Letterman when I was 15, there's nowhere, weird comedy is nowhere, and there's nothing speaking to you. And, And you watch TV all week, and it's a bunch of lame, like, different strokes type shit. And then for one hour a week, you can find some weird comedy. And it just felt like a lightning bolt to me of like, holy shit, I can't believe something that's talking to me finally. Nowadays, you can find that anywhere. You can go on Adult Swim any hour of the, any yeah. hour of the day. You can go on Netflix. You know, anywhere you want to go, there's a bunch of weird comedy. So what is the purpose of a talk show host now? I don't really know. So, And most of the talk show hosts that are popular now aren't even talk show hosts. They're more variety yeah, shows. talk shows now are not even comedy shows. They're variety shows, yeah. which, you know, a lot of comedy nerds are upset about. And they say, you know, look at look at the people out there and they're not doing real comedy. They're doing like pep rally comedy or whatever. I know they're there doing was, games. Yeah. And it's like, well, so who says talk shows have to be about comedy? That was something that Letterman... Letterman started, right, and Conan inherited. I mean, talk shows were actually talk shows they, uh, before they were talk shows, or that they were funny, or they were variety shows. Right. Look at the Carson Show. Do you think that's that's <laughs> you know a pure comedy show? No, I mean it was like his sketches were like just like hi, I'm being silly. I mean they were practically yeah. pep rally sketches back then, anyway. So you know, who cares that people can't get comedy on talk shows now? I don't, I, I don't know that I would even watch a talk show. Did you entertain notions of of ever trying to make Comedy Bang Bang more accessible or less arch in an I'm, attempt to transition your own show into something more? Originally, when we started, I thought that actually when when they asked me to do the show. IFC asked me to do the show um, based on these um, interstitials that I yeah. did for them, and those were um, those were kind of the interstitials were played because they had recently acquired a lot of um, reruns of television shows that they were going to be broadcasting, like Freaks and Geeks and Mr. Show, and um, a lot of comedy centric shows. Yeah. And they thought it would be additive to um, have me interviewing people who had been involved with the shows over the years. So I don't even remember who I talked to, but I remember there being definitely 
Bob and David because Arrested Development was right. one of the shows. Um, I think I maybe talked to Seth Rogen. I know I did Michael um, Sarah, and um, maybe maybe Paul Feig, maybe Judd Apatow. I can't really remember who I talked to over over the production, but um, they were fun and and you know, like I say, th- those were more like regular talk show interviews where I was like setting the person up and I wanted them to talk about it, but. The Michael Sarah ones, because I know Michael, um, and had done stuff with him and Paul F. Tompkins. Those were the two that were like us just doing bits. And Michael is like a guy who just wants to do bits. <laughs> he doesn't want to do <laughs> like Anything normal sincere. interviews. Yeah. And Paul and I have a relationship where we're constantly doing bits. And so those two, I remember being super fun. And Dan Pasternak, who worked at IFC, was saying like, this could be the show. This could be the show you, because there was so much fun doing these improv, dumb, dumb improv bits. He was like, I think this is the show. So it became not a show where I, I originally thought it was going to be like, watch what happens where I would get, you know, people like that, people mm-hmm. like in the comedy world around and just talk to them about comedy. And instead it became this arch, like totally sarcastic just doing bits show and i'm glad honestly in in a lot of ways i i'm super proud of the show i think it's evergreen in a way that um talk shows normally aren't and you can they have so much rewatchability um that you know i'm i'm very happy that it became a comedy show not a talk show and of course the other play on a talk show you've done is between two ferns right which which is why you have two emmys yeah (laughs) which you probably didn't start (laughs) that project with zach with that in mind no (laughs) i mean you're always thinking about the emmys (laughs) anything you do you're like what how does this how can we get the emmy out of what i'm doing um no i mean it was it was definitely just like a goof that I was doing. Um, yeah, we did the first one for this pilot that I was working on for Fox. Um, it was like a late night pilot mm-hmm. um, when they they um, weren't going to do Mad TV anymore. They need or they wanted something to fill oh, that right. time they slot. Were in the market for different things. Yeah, so I did this uh, sketch show with the cast was. Natasha Legero, Casey Wilson, James Adomian, Paul Rust, Maria Bamford, Ian Edwards. Um, oh gosh, I hope I'm not forgetting someone. Um, and Neil Campbell wrote it, and Dave Anthony wrote it, and um, Brett Gelman and John Daly wrote it. I think Brett Gelman ended up being part of the cast because just he would write these sketches that were all in his voice <laughs> and you'd go i can't i don't see anyone doing these the way you're gonna do them so we filmed a bunch with him um how did that not make it onto well oh so so many problems with it uh i i really struggled with look i could go down a rabbit hole on this topic but i really struggled with point of view um with the sketch show and that's something that um anyone who's doing a sketch show, I could talk to them for hours about and have talked to people for hours about. There are certain people who have done sketch shows 
on on networks mm-hmm. that when they're developing them, they've come to me and, and said, hey, what do you think about it? Blah, blah, blah. And I'll, and I'll sit down and I'll have a two-hour conversation with them about point of view. Um, it's a big... It's a big problem, um, and when I say point of view, is is we we made an hour long show. Big problem was Fox asked for a half hour, and I said this really should be an hour, and we filmed an hour. <laughs> um, but we showed them a, an hour long show, and I and I was sort of under the impression that doing it sort of like old SNLs was going to be fine, where it's like no, the point of view is it's these performers. And they're all giving you these sketches, right? But it's not enough when they're not famous nowadays. It's it's really tough. Plus, we had all this stuff like we wanted to do animation, and we had Zach doing Between Two Ferns, and he's not a cast member. Um, it was it was really really tough. Too many things going on. Too many things going on. But I thought people would be like, "Hey, wow, comedy! That's the point right. of view, comedy." It's never enough, unfortunately. Well, that's well, that's kind of the mindset of some of the more niche channels right now is they call them just like late night blocks and they're just throwing right hey comedy hey here's three hours of yeah three minute videos but even even yeah it, it's interesting because comedy bang bang the tv show solved the problem in a way that was so interesting even though i'm not famous having a person say this is my show Solves point of view in so many ways that you you don't even realize until you're watching something that doesn't have that. Um, no, yeah, I've had I've had these talks with uh, recently with Kevin McDonald about hmm. like, the difference between sketch groups where it's a definite group with an idea or even a duo because yeah. he's a big fan of Key and Peele. Oh, perfect example of point of view or Dave Chappelle show. But then there's other sketch groups, Dave Chappelle being another one. But then there's other groups where it seems like they are just kind of like shoehorned together and it's like there's no reason behind it. Birthday Boys maybe suffered from it because they're such a big group that you can't – it takes you a season for you to figure out who they are. You know what I mean? Right. Key and Peele, you go, this is these guys' point of view. Not only is it like, hey, this is two people's point of view – but add to that, we are going to examine race in America in a fresh way that hasn't been examined before. That's two points of view right, right there. It's very easy to lock you in on that. Um, bang, bang, just purely solved by, I am the host of the show. Hey, welcome. Wow, everything is crazy around me. <laughs> right. It's a talk show, but yeah. not the talk show you remember. Yeah. It's so crazy how point of view is such a big problem. Um, in trying to do a sketch show and no one goes into it thinking about it. Um, is that the problem also with a lot of podcasts? The podcasts don't have a point of view? Well, I'm not talking about the Earwolf podcast. I'm talking po- about like, no, no, <laughs> podcasts in general. in general. Podcasting is interesting because it's a different type of art form where, um, a lot of it is about, Hey, I want to, ha- I like these people and I want to hang out with them. Um, and that, that's not a lot of, you can't really do that on a TV show. Um, but other than, I guess, Friends really was one of the last ones. But fr- podcasting is a lot like the TV show Friends. Okay. This is a crazy analogy I'm just thinking of right now. But, um, podcasting is truly just like, I love these people. I would do 
I just like hanging out with them. I don't care what they're doing, you know? And as much as people can take a look at ep- episodes of, of the podcast Bang Bang and say, well, this one's better than this one or this one's better than this one, people would love it if they could just hang out and listen to us hanging out every week, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I like it being more of a variety show where, like, oh, one episode, you know, I'm going to have a strict, like, this is a character explaining his game over the course of a podcast. And then the next episode, it's going to be me and Ben Schwartz just like fucking around, you know, <laughs> if I, if I was really trying to be successful, I would make it more consistent, you know, <laughs> but, um, but podcasting is more, more personality based, I think, than point of view based. So with, with between two ferns though, that came out of, it was just oh, it came out of the a yeah. segment in a sketch show for late night for Fox. Yeah, so so we taped a bunch. Mind of we own. taped over an hour. I think we taped literally, and this is like actual content. We taped seventy minutes of content, so it was like an hour and a half. It was like I wanted to go up against SNL. Mm-hmm. You know, we taped an hour and a half worth of really funny sketches with all these people. Some of which I have somewhere. Uh, Ruben Fleischer was the director. Okay. He directed Zombieland and yeah. a bunch of great stuff. And, um, there was, um, I, some of the sketches I'm re- remembering was Neil Campbell wrote a really funny Wheel of Fortune, like behind the scenes docudrama of Wheel of Fortune where Pat Sajak was like, <laughs> A, a super macho asshole <laughs> and we taped it and it's really funny. Um, I have some of these and would love to put them online at some point. Um, and there was, uh, then there was the, uh, um, God, what were some of the other stuff? There was like an alien sketch that Paul and Neil wrote that Paul starred in. I don't know. There was a ton of really funny stuff. Oh, there was a uh, PD Crichton, which was, um, a very serious ER type show. Um, PD James and Michael Crichton. Yes. So, so it was like an ER show created by Michael Crichton. Mm -hmm. And, but it was if Michael Crichton also had to put his son in the show and his son was an idiot. And so Paul Rust was PD Crichton and he couldn't even act to the point of, he kept like pulling the boom down and going, what is this? And it was just like a favor done to Michael Crichton. Um, anyway, so we did this show and it didn't get picked up for a variety of reasons. And, uh, but we, we knew we had a ton of really funny stuff in it. And I actually went around to a bunch of other networks like Comedy Central and places and showed them the pieces, including Between Two Ferns. And was like, well, there's something here. We don't know what it is, but solving point of view is always a real issue of like, look, the point of view really is like me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the head writer and I'm like corralling all this, you know. So we did a version for Fox where, um, where it was at the UCB theater hosted by me and BJ and we were introducing the pieces and that they didn't bite on that. But, um, so we had all these funny, funny pieces and, um, between two friends was one of them and Zach was not well known yet, but more well known in comedy circles, you know? And we said, I don't know. Well, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to put it online? And so 
Um, Funny or Die had just started three months earlier, maybe. I'd be interested to know so how long it had been So their show, their HBO show. Oh, yeah, was way just before. just a collection of... Way before. I think maybe they wanted to know if we wanted to do some Between Two Ferns for that show, and we said no. But um, it was early in the site. And we and we just knew people through the UCB, mm-hmm. and we and they were all friends, and so we said, okay, well, let's put it up just for a lark. And um, I think a million people watched it, which at the time was big to us, and we were like, holy shit, a million people watched this between two ferns, and we and and this is how this is how yeah, like eight, yeah. This is how stupid we were. We were like, that's fucking weird. Well, what are we going to do now? <laughs> and it never crossed our mind to do another one. <laughs> and I'm not even saying, what are we going to do now? Like, Zach and I, what mm-hmm. are we going to do now? It was just like, individually, huh, well, that was weird. All right, well, let's move on to something else. And neither of us said, oh, this should be a thing. Even though your brain had kicked in before? Even what? Even though your brain had, your business brain had, oh yeah, no, for that I was just like crazy because I I was coming from the Mister Show methodology of like you do something once and you never do it again, you know. So I was just like, that's weird. And it took like Jimmy Kimmel being a fan of that first one. He said, "Hey, I want to do one on my show," and um, so we said, "Okay, let's see what that would be like." So we filmed one at his studio with him as the guest, and it aired. It was a crazy turnaround time. Ruben directed it, and we had to we had to work post all night and turn around, and it aired the next day. And um, and we didn't really like that one because of the process of filming it, which was we filmed it in his studio, and his entire crew was watching and laughing. Oh. And the first one we had done in a basement with literally just Mike, Sarah, Ruben, BJ, me, and Zach. And two ferns. Yeah, and two ferns. <laughs> and that was it. And we were like shouting out, hey, do this. Hey, do that. Okay, that's funny. Hey, do this. And that second one, there was a, there was, it felt like there was a giant audience, and we were like, oh, we don't like this. And so we, we actually were like, oh, well, that killed that. <laughs> And then it took John Hamm <laughs> saying, who had just started Mad Men. Mm-hmm. It was his first year of Mad Men, I think, saying, Hey, could I do one? And we went, I guess. And that time we said, but if only if it can be like the first one. Mm-hmm. And we filmed it in a shed at Funny or Die, well, like a tool shed mm-hmm. that they had. And, um, that one was really fun. We went, Oh, I think we have a thing. And that one became popular. And we said, Oh, I think. And then, and then Natalie Portman saw those three and said, I want to do one. And that, and then it blew up because that one became like how incredibly. Did you, how popular. did you control it from, from then not getting out of hand where you're, you're doing one every week? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think because we all had other stuff to work on. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, when I was first starting out in the business, like you would get, you would hear, hey, so-and-so is interested in you working on their show. And that would consume your thoughts for the entire week, like mm-hmm. one lead, you know, would like you would. And, and I would call my agent at the time and be like, hey, any news on that thing? And um, 
they'd be like, no, nothing yet. And I didn't know show business works slow, <laughs> you know? And, and nowadays it's funny to me because like something will come up and it'll be something that's like, so would have been so incredibly exciting to me when I was first starting out or, or is a lot of money and I will not think about it for weeks and I'll be reminded of it and go, Oh shit, I should follow up on that thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very weird. I think that we just individually had a ton of stuff going on and we were like, didn't want to ruin it. And, and we also had at that point, I think gone into a period I'd be interested to look at the release pattern of the first few of them, but I think they were every three months. And there were three in 2008, mm -hmm. four in 2009. So every three months or so. Although the, t the first two in 2009 were only three weeks apart. Oh, what were those ones? Natalie Portman, and then that was followed quickly with Bradley, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper? Okay, so what happened with that one was... Well, that was Hangover. Yeah, what happened with that was Natalie Portman did it, and it was huge. And um, and we were we were like, I think we have something here. And then The Hangover came out, and they the Hangover PR team wanted us to do one with Bradley Cooper. And, and if you watch the Bradley Cooper one, at the time, no one knew who Bradley Cooper was. I remember Zach saying around the John Hamm one, hey, what about Bradley Cooper? And he was someone he was doing, he was shooting the hangover right. at the time. And I was like, I don't know. No one knows who that is. Um, <laughs> and then be, and, and I believe the hangover paid us $5,000 maybe to, to do that one. And we, we shot that in Caesar's palace in Las Vegas in a hotel room. And, um, and, uh, so I think that's why that those were like one after the other because simply because the right. movie was coming out and then Zach the Hangover came out and it was like we're sitting on this huge property, but at the same time none of us wanted to ruin it and we we what we loved about it was three months would go by and you would forget about it and then suddenly you'd wake up in the morning and go oh there's another one oh shit oh, okay I like this again you know and it and it didn't have the the chance to burn you out on him, you know? Right. It really did. Yeah. That next year was about every three months. And then between 2011 and 2013, there were two years with that one. Two years. Yeah. So then it really did just become a surprise. Yeah. And those were the Oscar, the ones you did for the Oscars. For the Oscars. And that was, I think, I think none of us ever think to do them. That's part of the problem is, is we never think to do them. And it takes some outside force saying, and in that case, it was the Oscars. They said, hey, what if you came to the Oscars lunch where all the stars are who were nominated and we made that part of the press line that they had to go through, <laughs> that they had to go sit they down? They had to sit down with you. Well, it was their choice. Right. But it sounds like a fun thing to them of like, like, what would you rather do as Jennifer Lawrence, like sit there and talk to Entertainment Tonight for a half hour or go talk to Zach Galifianakis? I've, I've, been, I've been part of movie junkets and I've felt bad. Just bothering people. I felt yeah. bad well, for bothering people, but then also seeing all the other people who were about to bother them. Right, right. I'm like, oh. Yeah. So so that was so such a genius idea. And we're we're always really intrigued by an interesting idea. Um, so, But we hadn't done one in a couple of years, and, and they reached out to us and said, um, hey, do you, do you want to do this for the Oscars? And we said, that's so, that's so funny to make – 
Oscar nominated stars go through us to get, you know, go down the red carpet that we just said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And, you know, it became a really fun one. And so I think every once in a while something will happen where we'll go, hey, let's do them again. But everyone also could be the last one. You know what I mean? So did the, you have that feeling when you did the President Obama one? The President that, Obama that one. That that was going to be yeah. one that you were not going to be able to. To top, time. yeah, we kind of said this could be the very last one. And then I remember um, Brad Pitt had been calling Zach a lot, wanting to do one. And we had a conversation where we were... I just like imagining Zach being pestered with phone calls yeah. by Brad Pitt. Well, that's how... It's funny because he'll play me these calls every once in a while, like Bruce Willis leaving calls, leaving messages like, I really want to do it between two ferns. And us kind of going... And, and I remember Brad Pitt wanting to do one and us kind of going ah oh, god i don't know we just did the barack obama i think they were in the same year um i think yeah, the barack were. obama was in may or something and brad pitt uh, was, was in october maybe i was in austin so it was either south by or moon oh that's right it came out the last it's so far okay so here's a, here's the story about the barack yeah, obama it was one. south by southwest yeah so I was, March. In, I was in the airport waiting to fly yeah. fly out when so it came out the story about the barack obama one was i was at south by southwest and I was doing a ton of press for Bang Bang. And the thing about press for Bang Bang is a lot of times people are more interested in talking about Between Two Ferns. And I, you know, I accept it because it's like, whatever. That's one thing I do. And it's the more famous thing, mm-hmm. you know, but that's sometimes how I can get an interview for Bang Bang. And um, everyone at, at South by Southwest was like, when's the next Between Two Ferns? And I knew it was coming out on Monday. I think it came out on a Monday. If if it didn't, Monday or Tuesday. If it didn't, it came out on a Tuesday, and that was because it was delayed by something that happened in the news oh, that it would have seemed frivolous to come out. I know that it came out later than it was supposed to, okay. but it might have been a. Fr- it was. Su- it may have been supposed to have come out on a Thursday, and instead it came out on a Monday. But I don't know. But all that weekend of South, uh, South by Southwest, I was doing interviews, and they kept saying, when's the next Between Two Ferns? And I kept going, I don't know. I mean, we like them just to come out as a surprise. It could be years from now. It could be tomorrow. And I, I knowing it's coming right. out tomorrow. And... um. I'm in, I'm in the hotel at South by, by Southwest, and... The Obama um, administration didn't feel like they could do it like we normally do, where it just comes out. They, for some reason, felt like it needed to have one. They need. They needed to seed it to one press outlet that it was going to happen. I don't know what that was of just like you know like I I don't know like softening the blow or something like that. I don't know what it was. And and the internet Lots of was organizations have this relationship where they feel like they need to leak it to they need to leak media. it to a press outlet but what's weird about back then too and this is a few years back mm-hmm. is it would be leaked to one press outlet and they would be the only ones with it and it wasn't it wasn't like now where like anything that happens every single site will just run that right and say as later. reported by you know politico right. so so just one press outlet leaked tomorrow morning of Between Two Ferns with the President is going to come out. And Patton Oswalt, who had been, um, who was on top of all that stuff, wrote to me like, is this actually true? <laughs> and I said, yeah, man, it's fucking crazy. And I've, I've been having to keep it a secret for so long. 
And I got to the, you were there too. I got to the airport in the morning because I was flying out in the morning. Um, and John Gabris and Adam Pally were there on their computers. I got to my gate to my, my air, uh, to, to my flight. And John Gabris and Adam Pally were there with their computers and their headphones on. They're, they're looking <laughs> slack jawed at their computers. They look up and see me and go, dude, and they take off their, their computers and they're like, we're watching it right now. This is fucking crazy. It was so nuts. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was crazy. I mean, that was, that was one where, but we, we said at the end of that one, yeah, this is probably it. And then Brad Pitt wanted to do another one. And we said, I remember those two were so fun to do. Sometimes they're not as fun to do. Um, but those two were so fun to do and, mm-hmm. and came out so well. And those are the two Emmys that we got that, that Zach and I were kind of like, that might be it. We might, we might be done because what else could we do? And then when Hillary Clinton wanted to do one, we had a real frank conversation where we said, I don't know what else can we do with this concept? I don't know if this is something to do and then we ended up just saying you know what it's kind of like our patriotic duty to do it <laughs> you know um so we did it and what we kind of realized is like you know what if you take off enough time in between them no one cares like if you're trying to do something new with it or trying to break new ground with it people just like the format they like zach being rude to people they're just happy there's a new one yeah you know so i'm not even worried about it anymore if we if we do another one i think it'll just be fun where it's like oh yeah we just do it it's the same old thing it's the same old format it's zach being rude and you know it's fine you know i'm not going to worry about it anymore you know you mentioned wanting you'd wanted to be in the mix for legit Late night talk show host. Right. Did that make it more awkward when Reggie left Bang Bang to to join an actual? Uh, no, I don't think I don't think it made it awkward it, for you for me at all. Um, I, in fact, you saying that is the first, really, the first time where I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." Oh, I wanted to host one, and he actually did one. I have not put that together at this okay. point. Um, not really. I mean, it was, it was a good opportunity for Reggie. And, um, you know, honestly, the, the schedule with Bang Bang, it was really tough. And I think, you know, it's, it's very, very hard. And you have to, I don't know why anyone on the crew or writers or anyone other than me would do what we did. You know what I mean? It's like, where's the glory in, in doing a show like Bang Bang? Unless you're me, you know? It really, honestly, like, the show to me is like such a pure expression of like, wow, this is everything I want to do and everything I love. Um, if you're not me, why would you spend that much time working on it? You know? I really don't know. So it became a thing where, Three seasons on, in between three and four, it was like, you know, we we tried to come up with creative solutions for Reggie to, you know, lessen or, and lighten the load of his shooting schedule. Um, 
but at a certain point, it's kind of like you gotta to do this show. You gotta get up in the morning, and you gotta be there till late. You know, unfortunately, and so, <laughs> um, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, I get it. I get it. If yeah. you have to move on, and um, the the. I I was not scared about it though as much I I was a little scared because I was kind of that's odd to say to say I was not scared and then I was a little scared but um I I I I in my heart of hearts I wanted the show to be say we did 110 episodes which is what we ended up doing I wanted those 110, okay, so 110. <laughs> but I wanted all of those 110 to be interchangeable to where you wouldn't be able to say oh this is season 5 because Reggie's not there or you know I just wanted it to be all of them timeless um, and so when I started to realize oh Reggie's not going to be there for all of them and I'm going to go on and I'm going to do another season or two with someone else um it was kind of a bummer, but then I really embraced it and I was just thinking, you know what? Our show is about TV and TV conventions a lot. Um, part of what happens on TV is people leave their shows and either through like death, like coach on cheers or contract negotiations yep. or whatever. And you have to replace the people. And that's something that we should, it's a challenge that I want to tackle, you know? And so I, I, once I got, kind of like, oh, that's really cool. And and also, when I say I'm not afraid, I'm no longer afraid of, like, change on anything. Um, the changing the name to from Comedy Death Ray to Comedy Bang Bang taught me that, like, who gives a shit about anything? Just do what you want, you know? So um, I, I, I thought it was great. And so, you know, as far as Reggie doing the show he's doing now... Um, I'll tell you what came out of it was the Reggie Goodbye episode, which is one of the episodes I'm most proud of on the show. And also the 40 episodes that we did with Kid Cudi and Weird Al, which um, are awesome episodes. So, And then it also led to other... I, I don't know. The show came out the way it came out. You mm. know what I mean? And I, I really... A lot of times you can look at a TV show and go, God, if only we had stopped at season whatever or... You know, when Reggie left, we should have quit. I don't feel that way at all. Like, I look at the show and go, yeah, we did some awesome episodes after he left. And so um, I'm really proud of it. And you've moved on to other projects like Bajillion Dollar Properties. Bajillion Dollar Properties, yeah. You're making the Valentine's Day. Michael Bolton special. Michael, Michael Bolton's Bolton big, special. sexy Valentine's Day special, yeah. And you're still shepherding Earwolf. Uh, I, I am an employee of Earwolf, okay. yes. <laughs> I'm, You're a shepherd. <laughs> I'm one of several shepherds. I mean, no, those guys, you know, they, uh, uh, there's a great team over there who, who really does Scripps? it. Is that Scripps now? Well, Scripps owns, just... Scripps is the parent company, but I mean, there's a CEO and okay. like, you know, a lot of great people who run it, um, on a day to day basis. I'm, slightly more focused on the CBB productions, um, arm, which does bajillion and take my wife, Cam and Rhea show. And, um, we did the Bolton thing and, um, have other stuff in development. And yeah, that's mainly where my head is at right now. And then trying to figure out what I'm doing next. Um, the other, you know, you mentioned being able to, to get over, you know, losing names or, or losing sidekicks. 
what did what did the, um, what did Harris's death do to change your perspective on what what you wanted out of your own career? I think honestly it's not something that I was like, oh shit, life is short because I've always kind of felt like that and you know, I think in my own personal life um I've had that illustrated to me uh several times. So it, it was just a kind of reiteration of that. But as far as like what does it say about my career, it's definitely I talked about it on the episode, weirdly enough, we had recorded an episode right before he died that I was going to release three days after his death. And, and I was stuck with that. You know, I actually, we had a lot of his friends and coworkers over here where you are right now. Um, the Friday, or Saturday, no, the day, I think the day after he died to like, just like talk about it. And I remember sitting where I am right now, just talking about it with people saying like, I don't, you know, I, I said, I'm not going to release that episode for a year. It's too fresh. It's too painful to me. And Chelsea really was the person who, um, she wasn't here that night, but, but we were talking um, on the phone and she was really the person to say, no, like release it now. You, <laughs> there. And it's something that a lot of people like, you know, Aziz and Alan and people that, that worked with them on a day to day basis, they were coming up to me when, when we were here saying like, all of them had been listening to those episodes that he was on that day and just saying like, it's so cool to, you know, when someone passes away, you kind of think they're, you know, gone forever or whatever, but it's so cool to be able to hear him on your show. So yeah, I don't know. It was, it was definitely something that I'm glad that we were able to have those tape recordings of him that, you know, we can always listen to as far as, you know, what does it say about my career or a career in general? It's, I talked about it on the show a little bit about it's very dispiriting. Sometimes the life in the world can be very dispiriting. And I was thinking about it earlier today about just like what, uh, <laughs> I was talking, I was, I was saying to Akiva, who I, um, directed the, the right. Bolton special with, we were, we went to a meeting together and I was just like, comedy, is it worth it? <laughs> I, you know, I, I really don't know. And we were both kind of like, I don't know that it is. <laughs> I've had uh, that discussion with a number of people over the past year. Yeah. As, as it feels like the times you, are you making people want comedy in times of tragedy, but at the same time, it almost deserves. It feels like there's more. I don't know. More I've, I could be doing, or more we should be doing as a community. To, to go back to community, there's yeah. more we should be doing. But even even that, and I've and I did feel, especially in some of my 
final converse, conversations with Harris, which I talked about on the episode, you know, he was talking about how people want to do sort of like say more with their comedy and like do something that's reflective of the human condition hmm. and, you know, do their Annie Hall or do their Louie or whatever. And he was like, he said to me, I don't know, you know, sometimes motherfuckers just want to laugh, you know, and, <laughs> and, and I think about that, but, you know, sometimes it can be really hard because you kind of think, God, the world fucking just sucks. And then you also, it's like you, you fucking do everything you can to do comedy. And then there will be days where I wake up and like I, I put out an episodes on my, sometimes I dread Mondays because we put out an episode of the show. You know, you think I would be excited. You right. know, that, that whole feeling of like, Oh man, I can't wait to do this show at the UCB because people are going to show up and we have this awesome thing, you know? Like sometimes I, I, I wake up and go, Oh yeah, it's Monday. Can't wait to get on Twitter and see what everyone's complaining about today, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I know it's a cliche to be complaining about, you know, social media or your career or whatever, but it does, it does get to be very like, dispiriting of just like why am i even fucking doing comedy <laughs> you know like this bolton special that we're putting out we've killed ourselves to do it um for the past three months like all day every day mm. and i love it and it's so funny but i <laughs> but i i sometimes just go like is it worth it is it are all are uh, i and and i and then at the same time i think about that comedy fan out there who, Akiva, he was joking the other day and he said it. He said, um, sort of sarcastically, he said, you know, someone's life is going to be changed by this special. <laughs> and, but he's sarcastic about it, but it is also true in a way of like, there is some comedy fan out there who's going to watch this thing and go, holy shit, what the fuck is this? And have their whole, like, life changed by it. And I don't know. That's the reason to do it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you know? But it, it, you know, I mean, you, you got into comedy because of something that probably you saw. Yeah. And a collection of things that you saw when you were young. And, and to be a part of that is the reason to do it. Right. Just like you remember being wowed by the first comic relief and mm -hmm. other things. Yeah. I mean... The, the way that, that you the, could do the, that yourself. The way the David Letterman show just changed my entire personality and the, the fact to be part, the, the, the chance and the opportunity to be part of that and to know that, that that is having an effect on someone out there is a huge responsibility and is like something that I don't take lightly. Uh, and, and that's the reason to do it, I guess. So I think, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I think about and think about when, in, when it gets difficult and you, and, and you start to think, why the fuck am I doing this? No one seems to appreciate it. And, 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 and believe me, people do appreciate it and meeting all the fans and people who write 
to me on Twitter and, and in personal messages and stuff. It's really appreciated it. But some days, you know, <laughs> you wake up and go, everyone's fucking whining and asking me not to have this person on the show ever again. And I, and, 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 and the reason to do it is to be part of that thing and to know that somehow you're connected to, you know, that, little young boy that I was is connected to the young boy out there that's watching it right now is, you know, a special thing, I guess. I don't know. Not to mention a, a dead message thing. board. <laughs> but yeah. But it's good to remember them because they passed it on as well. Right. Yeah, they did. I they, mean, it's, yeah, it's really about, I mean, you know, some people have kids and they pass it on everything on right through their kids and then other people pass on their legacies and the, the oh gosh i hope i'm passing on my legacy that, for, uh, for some young dreamer oh i feel to like do this, something ridiculous and, this got incredibly serious at the end but sean we have to wrap it up <laughs> scott um, thank you so much thank you really appreciate this i appreciate it yeah <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.